0: Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you enjoy Unchained or Unconfirmed, my other podcast, which also features a weekly news recap after every interview, please give us a top rating or review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show.
1: Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling digital assets. It has the tightest security, deep liquidity, and a great fee structure with no minimum or hidden fees. Whether you're looking for a simple fiat on-ramp, or futures trading, Kraken is the place for you. In
0: response to the challenging times, crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases for the next 3 months. Download the crypto.com app today. Today's guests are Kathy Wood, CEO and CIO of Ark Invest, and Yasin Elmandra, Ark Invest blockchain crypto analyst. Welcome Kathy and Yasin. Very happy to be here, Laura. Great to speak with you.
2: Great to be here, Laura. Thank you for having us.
0: Kathy, let's start with you. Arc Invest focuses solely on disruptive innovation. How do you define that? And why do you believe that blockchain technology is one of those
3: disruptive technologies? Um, well, we define uh, innovation platforms uh, with three characteristics. Uh, the first one is that they follow uh, a declining cost curve. Uh, they're technologically enabled. They have learning curves, and they follow a declining cost curve. Think uh, think Moore's Law, uh, except uh, we have adapted a different law. It's a relative of Moore's Law. It's called Wright's Law, uh, and I can get into that if you'd like. Uh, yeah, but go it, ahead. Oh, okay. Wright's Law, uh, effectively um, developed by Mr. Wright in the early days of airplane manufacturing, says for every cumulative doubling in the number of units produced, costs decline at a consistent rate uh, for any new technology. And uh, so you can see how it's it's a relative of Moore's law. Moore's law is a function of time, and Wright's law is a function of units or production. And so, uh, and it's much more reliable and can be applied to any technology. Uh, it 's even more reliable for the semiconductor uh, industry uh, again because it 's a function of units as a, as opposed to time and there 's been a slowdown recently in semiconductors so that 's the first uh, a learning curve or declining cost curve and uh, and from that we are able to learn when a new technology is ready for prime time. And the way we find that out is uh, we say, okay, for every percentage decline in costs or price, how much does demand increase? Um, And what you found in the early days of the Internet or in the internet bubble, uh, you found that we weren't ready for prime time for a lot of uh, a lot of things, um, and and the most provocative example there is, you know, we thought we were going to sequence every person's genome. Uh, with DNA sequencing technology because we had just sequenced the first human genome and we were going to have precision medicine, uh, you know, ideal for each person. And, of course, the first whole human genome took $2.7 billion dollars to, to map, and it took 13 years of computing power. We were not ready for prime time. We were not ready for prime time. We're just getting ready for prime time now, below $1,000, soon to be $100, and the healthcare world is going to transform completely. So that's the first, uh, cost declines, rights law. The second is that uh, these platforms cut across economic sectors. And the reason that's important is Because every time costs go down, you really would like to unleash more and more demand. So the more sectors that an innovation platform touches, the bigger the opportunity to transform the world. Uh, And... uh, and then the third, even in, we'll we'll continue with DNA sequencing. Then many people think that is just for healthcare. It is not. It is also for agriculture, very importantly for agriculture and uh, any living organism. You know, whether it's animals or plants or fish or or what have you. So it's going to touch a lot more than human healthcare. And healthcare here in this country is twenty percent of GDP. So that already is a big, a big. Um, perspective market, TAM, total available market, uh, but then you must think beyond that uh, to any, anything that's a living organism and can be sequenced. Uh, and then the third characteristic, uh, so Wright's law, cutting across uh, sectors, and then the third characteristic is it becomes a launching pad for uh, for more technology, new, new technologies. So just to follow with the, the healthcare, the sequencing one, DNA sequencing has been the launching pad for CRISPR gene editing. So gene editing or, I mean, DNA sequencing can read the genome. And uh, we are able to identify mutations uh, that evolve in our genomes from year to year and CRISPR gene editing ultimately will be able to correct those programming errors and cure disease. Uh, now, we're in the early stages of that now, but we think it's extremely promising. Could not have happened without uh, without DNA sequencing. And DNA sequencing couldn't have happened without the computing age. Uh, so these technologies are building one on top of the other.
0: This is just so fascinating because, like, as you're talking, I can already kind of map how those three criteria, you know, led you to Bitcoin. And I know that in September 2015, ARK became the first public fund manager to invest in Bitcoin. So can you walk us through, like, how,
3: how that happened? Yes. Okay. So uh, absolutely. When we started the firm in 2014... Uh, We we had uh, broken the platforms out uh, by DNA sequencing, robotics, energy storage, and next-generation internet. And as we were evolving the research uh, associated with each of those platforms, we were doing more and more research on blockchain technology. And Bitcoin, and as you uh, as you know, um, Chris Berniski was our first uh, our first crypto analyst. Uh, Yassin Elmandra, uh, hand picked by Chris, uh, our second, and uh, and uh, so we said as we were exploring it and understanding it more and more, and really understanding Bitcoin too. You know that this wasn't just just next generation internet technology, that this was, you know, potentially uh, the first digital currency and the first global means of, uh, whether it means of exchange or a value unit of account, we said, we have got to break this out and separate it from the next generation internet because it, it could influence every sector as we began to understand what this really was. And, uh, it is going to be the launching pad for much more innovation going forward. So it started as next generation internet. Hey, this is interesting. Uh, the, uh, internet was never conceived with co- commerce in mind. In fact, uh, uh, until 1991 people forget this. Even I forgot it until I heard Steve case, a uh, given presentation before I gave one. And, uh, he said that it was illegal before 1991 and i believe it was called the communications act of uh, uh, 1991 there was some uh, some act it was illegal for consumers to uh, to transact over the internet to do anything over the internet consumers really weren't supposed to be using the internet this was for academia it was for research it was for government it was for darpa and then uh, we unlocked it in uh, early 91. So back then, the Internet was never conceived with commerce in mind. And so it never, it never included a, a payments uh, platform as a part of the infrastructure. This, and we were then looking, as we learned more and more about Bitcoin and, 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 and blockchain technology, we said, okay, this is the missing link. You know what we've been doing over the internet, paying for things with credit cards, and you know that's kludgy, and there are all kinds of security risks. And what were we thinking? Well, we were thinking about it appropriately in the early days, because the knock on the internet and on Amazon is nobody was going to transact over the internet; it's totally insecure. <laughs> and then, of course, and then of course, convenience trumped uh, security. And uh, and each of these companies who developed on on top of the internet understood that security was mission critical for them. So they each had to develop their own form of security, right, or make sure to harness all the security software out there and then you know encrypt it or make it uh, their own in some way, sh- shape, or form. Well, uh, this is this this was what. Blocked, or this is what should have happened in the very early days of the Internet. Now, with uh, Bitcoin and, and digital currencies generally and, uh, you know, blockchain technology, I believe we're, we're going to reorient how we do things, even around the Internet going forward.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's already happening.
2: Before I forget to kind of echo uh, Kathy's point there, I think what we're starting to realize now is that really the frontier of economic activity is increasingly pushed into this digital world. And so now kind of the need for these new novel institutions to reliably uh, enforce and provide uh, what we like to define as assurances to wealth become increasingly important. And so I think beyond just this idea of a native money, uh, understanding that crypto networks and in particular Bitcoin um, are these novel social and economic institutions that unlock these new modes of, of human organization uh, becomes all the more relevant in the context of kind of Kathy's dissemination of the history of what got us here to begin with.
0: Yeah. So, Yassine, why don't you give us the background on how you came to work at ARC and what it is that you do there?
2: Sure. So, uh, I cover crypto assets and blockchain at ARC. Uh, I joined in July of 2018. So, shortly after Chris, uh, ARC's former crypto analyst, left to start Placeholder. Um, and so really, Chris uh, handed me the baton, uh, and I'm, I've been very fortunate since to have a chance to fall into the crypto rabbit hole as a, as a full-time job. Uh, prior to that, I, I was in school, so I, I went to the University of Pennsylvania and uh, double majored in uh, systems engineering and finance. Uh, and during my time in college, uh, I was very fortunate uh, to uh, you know, intern at a, a venture capital fund uh, in the Valley. Uh, in which they kind of gave me an opportunity to uh, look into crypto from both an investment and tech perspective. Uh, And I found that what I was studying, really this marriage between management and technology, between economics and technology, uh, seemed extremely symbiotic with kind of the crypto space more broadly. Uh, And so there I was like, I I definitely just want to do this full time. Uh, And believe it or not, I found Arc through Twitter, I had uh, seen Chris at one of his uh, book signings. He had posted uh, a tweet that he was going to have a book signing in in New York. Uh, And so I, the next day, booked a a ticket 5 a.m. to go up to New York. Uh, There I met Chris and I had met Kathy for the first time as well. And and I would say the rest is history.
0: And I have heard you talk about how you initially got into Bitcoin, then discovered Ethereum, but then came back to Bitcoin. So, what do you mean by that, and and why did you come back to Bitcoin?
2: Sure. So, I, if, if, I think a few things. I, I would say that there, I initially kind of got in actually just as a my my, my father had come to me randomly and said, uh, it, "Are there any interesting investment opportunities that I'm not that, I, that I'm currently not aware of?" Uh, And, you know, Bitcoin was always in the back of my mind. i had never really uh, kind of fallen deep into the rabbit hole uh, and was given the kind of that opportunity to do so. Uh, And so when I look when when you look at it from kind of an investment perspective, uh, I was very kind of fascinated by what many consider to be this new asset class. uh, And looking at kind of Bitcoin as really that starting point, uh, but not really uh, the most interesting thing out there. Enter Ethereum, where, you know, Bitcoin has extremely uh, is, is limited in, in its capabilities and its performance and provides specific guarantees. But that obviously comes at the cost of being, quote unquote, scalable. Uh, and so uh, when you think about kind of new forms of these decentralized information networks like Ethereum, uh, they provide kind of massive amounts of feature sets that something like Bitcoin cannot provide. And so intuitively it seemed like, you know, Bitcoin would be something kind of far less interesting than the thousand other crypto assets that were out there. And really Bitcoin was the MySpace to Facebook. As I started to kind of realize from an investment standpoint where I think most value is going to accrue and kind of what made Bitcoin so unique and why it was it had specific value propositions that quite frankly, I think are very difficult to replicate. Um, It it goes back to really what what these represent Uh, and and so in, in this idea of providing kind of assurances to wealth where, you know, the transition to a digitally dominant economy has brought rise to these institutional technologies that are supposed to provide, you know, specific assurances that compete with financial institutions that compete with governments that compete with markets that compete with firms. And so this idea of kind of having an accessible digital foundation that offers strong assurances and consistently enforces these assurances uh, was something that became, I would say, much, much more compelling than kind of the thesis that we tend to see in things beyond Bitcoin. So uh, as we transition into this digitally dominant world. I think having these assurances to wealth, everything from kind of reducing the risk of expropriation and seizure to, you know, reducing the, the risk of arbitrary rules to monetary policy, um, everything from kind of lowering barriers to freely transmit and store value uh, and doing all of this in a really auditable and, and native way, uh, f- to me, felt much more compelling than kind of trying to reverse or flip the Internet stack and so that's ultimately why I came back to Bitcoin, and 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 find that to at least for me be the most interesting thing in kind of the space that 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 is very interesting holistically. So.
0: Yeah, and this so this space is like wild on its own, but then obviously, right. now for the last um month or, or a few months, we've had another wild card thrown into the mix, which is the coronavirus. And, right. um, I when I was doing the research, um, even like very recent articles, just you know, when I was reading them, I was wondering. Hmm, I wonder if, you know, Kathy would answer or, or Yasin or, you know, if either of you would answer the questions the same way. And so, Kathy, actually, I saw that there was this Bloomberg article about ARC from February and it praised your ARC innovation ETF as, quote, the best performer among 584 funds with at least one billion dollars of assets in the global equity market, crushing the likes of BlackRock with a return of 165 percent over the past three years, and then it said that you beat 99 of of the um, others in your category since Ark became a registered investment advisor in 2014, and you know, just looking at it, I was like, okay, so February is such a different time from now. And in with such an ETF, where you know, you're placing that's on newer technology, which by definition are riskier. How does something like that perform at a time like this? And, you know, I don't know what you would call this time, like, would you say we're in an economic crisis? Like, I'm, I'm kind of curious how you would characterize what's happening.
3: Okay so I will separate this into two parts and and talk about what we think is going on and then and then how we've performed uh okay yeah okay so my background is economics and that's why uh it was so easy for me to be taken by by bitcoin uh by the way I think it's a real it's a really good background to have in order to understand what's going on on the Bitcoin front. But, um, so I, uh, and my mentor is Art Laffer. I don't know if that name rings a bell. He's, uh, in the economics world, uh, he's famous for something called the Laffer curve and supply side economics. And he actually is advising, um, President Trump pretty regularly, uh, uh, now, so um because I've been in the business for so long I started in college in the late 70s I've seen 10 crises for, and that includes recessions and uh they they vary some are recessions and others are shocks I would categorize what we've just been through as a shock it's an exogenous shock a healthcare crisis this did not start with the economy it started with uh the coronavirus uh, so, a shock there have been two other shocks uh, in my experience uh, as an investor. The first was in October of nineteen eighty seven and there was something called a day called Black Monday during Black Monday. The stock market dropped almost twenty five percent in one day, uh, which is worse than what has happened this go around in in any one day. And uh, the reason was there was something called portfolio sh- insurance that had been developed at the time and it had become so popular uh that uh when everybody started you know basically relying on the insurance and trying to get out the door at the same time it failed and uh and that's what took the market down there was a panic and uh I uh, the second uh, shock was 9 eleven 9 eleven was you know a terrorist attack uh, a terrible thing but again exogenous so both of these were exogenous one was a portfolio insurance gone yeah. wrong uh, it was uh, not well designed uh, and and maybe yeah. not even honestly designed, I don't know. Uh, and then the second was a terrorist attack. Neither of those were started because of failures in monetary or fiscal policy. They were outside, from outside the economic system. And uh, what happened during those periods was the trends that were in motion before those shocks took place Uh, basically remained in motion. You went through maybe a two, three, four month period where the shock had people on edge and activity was subdued. But um, we we got through that. And in the 80s, we continued along the bull market and very strong economic growth. In the early 2000s, 2001, we were in the middle of the tech and telecom bust. We continued along uh, that uh, line for another uh, 18 months. And this time around, we had entered with the economy in an extremely strong position. And it was from a couple of angles. The consumer spending was very strong and the consumer saving rate was 8%, roughly 8% very high by historical standards. It had doubled in the last five to eight years. Uh, And so the consumer had a a, a nice, not all consumers, of course, this is uh, devastating what's happening now uh, for certain consumers, but uh, on average the consumer had a a good level of savings relative to historical standards. You can go into the um, early parts uh, or the later parts, I think, of 90 and Early parts of two two thousands and see a saving rate of one or two percent, so much higher than uh, traditionally has been the case. At the same time, you had had businesses who were um, they were fearful of a few things and had been actually pulling back on inventories and capital spending for almost eighteen months, uh, and uh, uh, it wasn't a straight pull back in, in that inventories went down. They just weren't keeping up with demand. Uh, and the reason for businesses were so concerned is that we were in the middle of the China-U.S. conflict, trade conflict, and the yield curves had inverted. And yield curves, historically, within 12 to four, uh, 18 months of an inversion, a yield curve, an inverted yield curve, was a harbinger of recession. Well, uh, the recession wasn't ha- happening, wasn't going to happen. Uh, but you had businesses very conservatively postured. You had consumers in a very good mood, record confidence, very high saving rate, felt good. Uh, uh, you know, felt secure. And suddenly the shock. Uh, if we're right and if the, 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 both the Fed and the administration have done the right things uh, and, and, and they're not all the right things. They're throwing too much at this. But uh, we think in terms of fiscal policy, the loans uh, are a good idea to keep businesses uh, intact so that there's an infrastructure for employees to go back to. Uh, so we we think that they're doing enough of the right things and, and will continue to do enough of the right things, including perhaps a payroll tax holiday for the rest of this year, to encourage much more activity to come back this year, uh, so we think we think that uh, uh, both of them have, and I think this is the reason the stock market has been doing so well it correct it could correct any time because we 've moved up so quickly here. Uh, I do think the trend that was in motion beforehand will continue uh, after we get through these three to four months will end up in a V shaped recovery, very strong, and businesses will have to race up to, to race to catch up to consumer demand. So I and actually I think that-
0: one One question I wanted to ask about that, because, you know, in the various comments I saw of of yours online, some of them were from kind of earlier before the unemployment figures that we have now, which at the time of this recording are at about 17 million. So has that changed your view at all about that V-shaped recovery?
3: well what what I will say no actually the v shape will is because of this you know uh so just to explain that a little bit uh, and 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 in the context of the prior two shocks, this shock is like the prior two combined and then you add some to it uh so it is the biggest of the three shocks, and um uh, i I think that uh I was concerned in the beginning when I, I saw the government; they were uh, there was a little bit of chaos there, and I thought that uh, that 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 would cause you know a lot of bottlenecks uh, in terms of getting checks out there and getting loans out there. But they seem to be working through those, uh, and so. Uh, i just heard uh recently that um, if you look at multi-dwelling residences 90% are paying their rent uh which is much better given the number you know the just 17 million that are uh that have filed for uh unemployment insurance claims you know these people are expecting to keep their jobs uh and want to continue to live in the same place and uh commercial tenants uh, at, at least for this one organization, which is very broad based, are paying one hundred percent and this is as of yesterday uh, well early april I, I will say they they are one hundred percent paying their rents. Uh, the biggest problem is in the retail uh, and restaurant area where only thirty percent are paying so and those that's uh, that 's where the help is targeted a, a, as well a, a lot of the help. Uh, so I think if we just hold these businesses intact, which is what this administration is trying to do. And, uh, now that the Fed is actually buying commercial paper and taking a lot more of the short-term funding risk out of the market, again, all of this is trying to tide us over for the next three to four months, uh, so that these, uh, these companies are still intact uh they may not be operating at a very high capacity but they're intact and there is a place for these employees to go back and we can start up again i think and especially the way the task force has been uh has been educating people about uh about what's going on they're saying look we're going to come back Really strongly. Now, President Trump is saying, you know, uh, V-shape, we're coming back stronger than ever before. Mike Pence will temper that a bit and say, yeah, we're going to do this safely and and so forth. So you have that a little bit of that going on. Uh, but I do think by the end of this year, we're going to be surprised at how strong this economy is.
0: Huh, okay, well, let's, so we're going to um, dive a little bit more into how the coronavirus uh, coronavirus will impact um, also the crypto markets. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. In response to the challenging times, Crypto.com is introducing three measures to help the community. First, the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases will be waived for the next three months. Second, you could get up to 10% back by using the MCO Visa card on food delivery and grocery shopping at merchants like Uber Eats, McDonald's, Domino's Pizza, Walmart, and more. Don't have a card yet? Buy gift cards on the Crypto.com app from merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, Chipotle, Papa John's Domino's and more, and get 20% back on food and 10% back on groceries. This is a global offer, so check out which merchants are available in your country. Download the crypto.com app today.
1: Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber. To improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great, you'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at Aruba.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Kraken. Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling digital assets with all the recent exchange hacks and other troubles you want to trade on an exchange you can trust kraken's focus on security is utterly amazing their liquidity is deep and their fee structure is great with no minimum or hidden fees they even reward you for trading so you can make more trades for less if you're a beginner you will find an easy on-ramp from five fiat currencies and if you're an advanced trader, you'll love their 5x margin and futures trading. To learn more, please go to Kraken.com. That's K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Back to my conversation with Kathy
0: Wood and Yassine Almandra. So in your view, how do you think, you know, obviously, like for years now, and I think Chris Bernsky actually was uh, one of the people, or he and um, Adam White wrote a paper that called this out all the way back in i think it was 2016 yes um, it was. where it talked about how yeah the uh, the crypto markets or really it was is mainly bitcoin back then were uncorrelated to traditional markets and i was wondering if that still held here in the time of the coronavirus or you know how you think this virus will impact the crypto markets
3: Sure. So I'll start and then hand off to Yassine because he's been updating that study, as a matter of fact, and uh, we're going to put it out uh, yep. fairly shortly. Um, but just to start out, uh, I uh, was uh, obviously we all were watching. Um, what happened uh to to Bitcoin uh, you know going down more than fifty percent into the three thousands when everybody assumed that the uh, two hundred week moving average, which everyone had been trained on, and we had started out that way actually at pointing out that hey it held even in the riskiest of times uh, it didn 't hold it broke through that. Uh, in in March. And, you know, uh, there was so much going on with, with the rest of our world in equities that, uh, you know, I was just looking at the correlate. I said, wait a minute, uh, Yasin, gold keeps going up and Bitcoin has just crashed here. What the heck is going on? Uh, so it certainly wasn't correlated to, it was inversely correlated to gold, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which was also a, a, a big surprise. And, um, you know, you usually get these breakdowns when everybody assumes they've they've nailed it, like that two hundred week moving average. When you've got so many people, it's a little bit like portfolio insurance that I described in in uh, nineteen eighty seven, uh, and you can even say the same in the equity market. There were a lot of low volatility strategies and risk parity strategies. That fell apart in this period. They weren't supposed to. Why did this happen? It's because there was too much capital chasing uh, that objective and there was too much comfort that they had nailed it. In other words, they thought the risk was out of the system and out of their portfolios in some, in some great way. When it came to Bitcoin... I noticed, uh, and uh, we talked, uh, uh, Yasin and I uh, talked a lot about it. I noticed that, okay, we, we got to the 200-week moving average around, you know, it was in the high 5,000, 6,000, and it kind of just stabilized there. And everybody was getting used to the idea that, Yep, that that's it. It has held. If you look go back to 2015 when we initiated our position, we initiated it when it hit the 200-week moving average and it then continued to hug it. There is so much more capital now involved in this space and it's hedge fund, speculative capital and the leverage that uh uh you know there there were apparently and I didn't even know about these people. Yassin of course did, but apparently there were i will call them traders or speculators who were using 100 times leverage and 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 uh, <laughs> bitmex was one of the places this was happening 100 times leverage and they were considered apparently you know as though they could do no wrong you know in 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 our business in our business i know if i ever feel Like, I, this is so easy. This is getting so, this, we are onto something big here. I, that, that makes me cringe. It makes me shudder. I start looking for all of the risks and I actually start taking risk off when I start feeling in that, feeling that way. I think the people who were involved and actually got to a hundred times leverage were so inexperienced in, in terms of what leverage can do. They had no idea that it was going to shut down their firms. They had no clue. I guarantee you they had no clue. If I had known uh, that there was that kind of leverage out there, y- Yassin did. But again, he was in that circle. It wasn't something we talked about in terms of leverage. And in that circle, these people had become very popular, very famous, but if someone had told me, look, there's something out there, uh, it, you know, and a, a, a fairly nascent asset that is um, being leveraged a hundred times, I would have said, Okay, get me you know let's that let me t- let me just tell you where the weak link in the system is, and those guys will go down, and they did so uh, I know Yasin uh, knows a lot more about this than I do and also knows a lot more about the correlations, but the only last thing i 'll add is that it makes sense you 've got so many more hedge funds involved who are not only involved in the crypto assets but also equities and bonds they 're multi asset managers. That when you get this amount of capital moving in, it is logical when there's a crisis in one market and there are margin calls, and there are margin calls all over the place in all kinds of assets, uh, that they're all going to go, the correlation is going to go to one in that moment in time. But I think Yassine has surfaced some more interesting insights about uh the correlations uh in and around this period that i think will explain that we're still on, we're still very early stage in terms of this asset class uh and the correlations are still fa- fairly low so so yasin
2: sure I, I think that sets it off quite nicely it, it really has been interesting to see the evolutions uh of narratives around kind of the crypto space more broadly during coronavirus I would say for Bitcoin specifically, and Laura, to your point, um, there have been really two competing narratives that have been questioned during uh, this first quarter of 2020. The first is obviously kind of Bitcoin as this uncorrelated financial asset. And then the second is is Bitcoin as this safe haven asset. Um, I think that, you know, it was a shock to many of us to see Bitcoin during this time suffer uh, its second largest daily drawdown in history. Uh, and, and I think it was fewer than 15 minutes we saw Bitcoin drop from 7,200 to less than 5,400. It broke its 200-week moving average, and, and that was that 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 hadn't happened in seven years. And then it it, it, it continued to sink, touching I think 3,800 dollars. Uh, and then to Kathy's point, the largest contributor to this sell-off uh, appeared to be these Bitcoin liquidations to satisfy margin calls uh, on the Bitmexes of the world. Uh, Bitmex during that time saw almost a billion dollars in liquidations of its perpetual swap and, and the most uh, over a 24 hour period in almost two years. Um, and so the sell off was definitely severe and it was in tandem with a, an equity market sell off. And so questions have definitely been raised around Bitcoin's legitimacy as an asset worthy of allocation, um, if, if especially if its claim to fame narrative has been it, it's, uh, its non-correlation and kind of the safe haven aspect. Um, if we dig into the numbers and actually coin metrics, uh, it's crypto asset data provider. And Kathy was talking about, we're updating, we're collaborating on a white, white paper with them. And they actually recently, re- uh, released a report, um, showing kind of the, the historical correlations, uh, and updating that into, into the, into, uh, the coronavirus. Uh, and so. If we look at, like, kind of the history of Bitcoin uh, with, let's say, the S&P 500, we, we see that it, it has been relatively uncorrelated. Uh, since 2012, uh, the correlation has stayed between 0.15 and negative 0.15, which signals kind of little to no correlation. Uh, and and then but but over this last month, we saw kind of this correlation reaching new all time highs. Um, and so is it fair to ask then Does this recent correlation suggest that Bitcoin and the S&P 500 are now suddenly correlated? I would say no, because although the short term correlation did shoot up, I think it it was still under kind of very unique market circumstances. You had kind of a lot of news about the spreading of coronavirus uh, in which investors across every asset class rushed into cash. And so, really, what we need to look at is correlation shot up between most assets in March, uh, and and in, in fact, uh, to to Kathy's point about gold, e- even the correlation between the S and P five hundred and gold was was also its highest since twenty thirteen, uh, and so I would say over the long term, I, I expect the correlation between let's say Bitcoin and the S and P uh, to to see some sort of reversion to the mean. And, and then return to that range that we've seen since 2012. But at the same time over the short term, uh, I I think that, you know, we we very well may continue to see kind of relatively high correlation between the two, especially since, uh, especially since we've seen kind of strong correlation uh, across all asset classes. Uh, and yeah. then, yeah. Sorry. No,
3: I was just going to add one, one more thing, uh, Laura. I, I, I think that uh this was a really good lesson. I think it will add to the maturity of the ecosystem uh because uh it's so clear that the willy-nilly leverage is not to be trusted. And uh so you will have more scrutiny of leverage in the eco in all in all, many of the crypto asset ecosystems. Uh and I think that's a good thing.
0: Yeah. And one other thing I did want to add was there were a few um, circumstances on that day that um, contributed to what happened on Bitmax. One is that their systems actually suffered a DDoS during this whole March 12th, Black Thursday liquidation period. So that also affected things. And then the other thing is that there were a lot of arbitrage opportunities because the price of Bitcoin diverged wildly, um, you know, between the different exchanges and markets. But the uh, blockchain itself became so backlogged as people were trying to move um, money around to take advantage of the arbitrage opportunities that they weren't able to. And so I imagine that there are some liquidations that happen that maybe would not have happened if it weren't for the fact that the Bitcoin blockchain itself was um, clogged. And, and the same happened with Ethereum. Um, and for listeners who did not hear the episodes I did with Kyle Simani, where he kind of breaks those down, and then Antoine luck Le- Le Calvé of Coinmetrics, who um, was on Unconfirmed, both of them in their shows kind of dissected what happened. Um, So one other thing that I wanted to ask you about was, Kathy, I did see in a Yahoo Finance video that was about ARK's big ideas for 2020. You talked about how your conviction in Bitcoin has, has only grown since the downturn um, from the last big bubble at the end of 2017. And I wondered why that was and you know, how you look at its future outlook, like what analysis you make to, to say that.
3: Yeah, I think uh, from the at the peak uh, in 2017, Bitcoin, and, and I know these are not precise numbers, but, you know, whatever errors are being made are being made all the way through. So um, Yassine can can refine this a bit uh, afterwards. But at the time, uh, we, we were looking at the total network value of the crypto asset ecosystem. And we uh, noticed that, you know, Bitcoin had gone down to the low 30s as a percent of the total. As a Bitcoin price and all crypto asset prices kept uh, coming down, Bitcoin's share started to rise and it rose uh, to, I think, the low 70s. I'm not 100 percent sure where it is now. I think it's high 60s, although after the crash, it may be higher. Uh, And what that told me, again, bringing my economic roots back is, uh, you know, Bitcoin is the reserve currency of the crypto asset ecosystem. And that's what a reserve currency is. The dollar, the dollar right now, I think is about 65%, 60, 65% of global currencies. Bitcoin getting up into the low, uh, 70s said, okay, this is the reserve currency. This is the strongest currency. This is the most secure. Uh, that's one of, uh, one of the things, uh, it told me. Uh, and I, I also, uh, think we were learning, uh, we were doing a lot more research on wow confiscation of wealth. This is a perfect antidote and at the time we had um, we had the m b s is that his name m b s uh, arrest his own cousins in Saudi Arabia and lock them up in a hotel i 'll bet there are a lot more not just in the Middle East but in emerging markets. In any, uh, emerging country or, or even developed country where, um, individuals fear there will be confiscation of wealth, either, either in a direct way, like it was in Saudi Arabia, or in an indirect way, um. Think Zimbabwe, the hyperinflation, Venezuela, Argentina, Argentina, 50 percent inflation. That's crazy. Uh, So uh, I think that um, this idea of confiscation of wealth, you know, we we can we can take out this insurance policy. We can carry it around in our head in terms of the 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 key to unlock it instead of around with us uh I, I with all the hot spots flashing around the world you th- think about china hong kong the protests in hong kong what do they think is going to f- happen finally uh i i we just began to to do more work and i think uh yasin the work you've done said just uh, if you took the If you took the uh, uh, individuals in the world with, I think uh, we said, an investable investable wealth of uh, $1 million around the world, and they bought out uh, uh, an insurance policy, which basically uh, uh, suggested that, well, there's a 5% chance in your lifetime that you're going to see full confiscation of wealth. Uh, That uh, total was about $3 trillion, just that use case just that use case. Uh, So the store of value, certainly, and this reserve currency role, there is no uh, more important role for money. And there's nothing more viral than a a reserve currency when you're talking talking about currency markets. Uh, So Yasin, you might want to add, add to that.
2: I, I would say another, another additional point is actually around kind of the infrastructure and credibility amongst financial institutions and in the community more broadly that has been accepted since since 2017. Um, so you know, Kathy often likes to reference the the Cambridge Associates report uh, that came out uh, around portfolio allocation specifically and how Cambridge recommended that institutional investors begin exploring these crypto assets. Uh, more broadly, uh, obviously, with Bitcoin at the forefront of that, um, you have, you know, institutions like Fidelity who are now understanding and recognizing that there's that there could be an institutional appetite. Um, and in order to fuel the demand, you need to have kind of regulated custodial services. Uh, and, and you have, uh, you know, Fidelity has been mining Bitcoin for, for years now, now entering that space, it, it, seeking to meet that demand. Uh, We saw the recent launch of kind of backed uh, everything around price discovery and market infrastructure. Uh, And I would say another one that that uh, a lot of people are are dismissing or have not really looked at how profound the implications could be um, is around Square. Uh, and what they've done, in particular, what Jack Dorsey has done as you know the CEO of two public companies, who genuinely understands the value proposition of Bitcoin, and is really doing everything he can uh, with the resources that he's been able to, uh, to 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 build over the last few years uh, to kind of fuel demand for Bitcoin. Uh, I think the launch of Square Crypto, uh, you know, launching that first open source Bitcoin initiative. Uh, Could and we've seen has become a precursor for open source development from other institutions, obviously questions around kind of sustainability of funding for developers Uh, that's that puts that to rest. Uh, And and so when you have kind of a lot of momentum that's kind of being built uh, around the institutions uh, that are now deeming Bitcoin credible, combined with the fact that now you're seeing kind of these recent trillion dollar injections from the Fed. Uh, it, it is possible that we are, uh, you know, in the midst of this crucial inflection point for Bitcoin. I would say, if central banks continue to inject uh, money into the economy at these rates, in which, in which, you know, something like uh, the the narrative that, that we saw in 2017 uh, it will, will kind of pale in comparison to what we what we might see in the next few years.
3: Okay, so I'm going to do uh, – sorry, Laura. I'm going to do just a little bit of a reality check on that because uh, – and and uh, Yassine agrees with uh, what I'm about to say as well. But what we're seeing, and this is from personal experience, is institutions, uh, while the infrastructure is being sure. built around them right now, institutions are not ready to move aggressively into this space. Uh We have had uh, – you know, we, we uh, manage money for institutions – we have one of our largest, uh, institutions owned G- GBTC and was trying to figure out a lower cost solution. Uh, and we were trying to help them do that in the form of, you know, more of a, a private fund, which would be much more, um, uh, efficient from, uh, from a, a, an expense point of view. And, uh, uh they, 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 they had trouble getting over, uh, over the hump. They were almost there until they realized that it would be broken out as a separate fund and that they would be on the line as effectively espousing Bitcoin. Uh, uh, and they just didn't <laughs> want to do that. So they stuck, they stuck with GBTC, even though they were, they had started us on this uh, search for a better alternative for them. So institution, and they trust us. I mean, this institution has been with us. It's our, uh, it's one of our, lo- uh, longest lasting clients, one of our first. And, uh, so they trust what we're doing and they know, we know our stuff when it comes to, uh, especially to Bitcoin and they wanted a lower cost solution but uh they the the optics of actually seeming to support it without being in, being included in a much broader portfolio was something they couldn't take i also uh have uh you know i've uh, we know this is a, an issue and i i was with a a group i had a, an opportunity to meet with a group to try and talk through this institutional issue and You know, uh, I I think the most important thing we have to do is educate, educate, educate. That's why Yassine is updating that uh, white paper. The original one was Bitcoin ringing the bell for a new asset class. We're updating it because we really do feel like it is time now that we've gone through these Perturbations and maybe much more than that in these markets from a price point of view. Um, and, and yet if you look at Bitcoin on any kind of moving average basis, it's still appreciating year over year. So, um, from year to year. So, uh, I, I, we're, we're bound and determined to become a part of the solution to that problem. And, and, you know, one, you asked my confidence. One other thing I wanted to point out is I also had the, uh, luxury of meeting some of the, some of the core developers in the space, uh, uh, and um, for Bitcoin, you know, yes, in the Bitcoin space, and because my my uh, education was in both economics and finance, uh, I w- was able to you know see how much they understood about economics and. So, um, I was I was blown away by the f- sophistication in terms of understanding economic theory and understanding monetary policy, monetary theory, Austrian economics, and I, I have to say that has also boosted my confidence. I believe they understand how important that twenty one million l- unit limit is, especially in the context of what is happening, what started happening uh in 0809 in terms of opening the floodgates uh it never turned into inflation so many people say oh fine we can do that again and we just have uh and it's still not going to turn into inflation i disagree uh and i disagree for the same reason portfolio sh- insurance didn't work and low vol strategies didn't work when everybody thinks Something is a sure thing, it's usually wrong. And I think mm-hmm. to look at 0809, 0809, and to see inflation coming down, actually, it came down after that. Why was that? Think about it. It was because the velocity of money collapsed. Consumers started saving more. They did they were spending and the spending was going at a good clip. But they were also saving more all along the way. And businesses had become very conservative, very, very conservative. Uh, so, um, and what I mean by that is from an operations point of view, some of them were leveraging up to buy back stock, which turned out to be a very bad idea. But, uh, that's, that's why I think this, this notion that inflation is dead it, to the extent I hear that more and more, just because it has been. Uh, means it will be, I will become more convinced we're going to have an inflation problem because these reserves, both from 08 and 09, and now again from today, we're going to go up to $9 trillion, uh, in reserves. We were, we started before 08 at 850 billion. We went up to four and a half trillion then. And now we're going to go to $9 Those reserves are sitting on the uh, balance sheets of central reserve banks. And they are kindling. They are the kindling. When banks start competing against each other uh, to make loans, that kindling will be lit. And, you know, when everybody feels we're free and clear. And I don't think that's anytime soon. I don't think inflation is a problem for the next two years at all. But I do think to dismiss it as a potential problem is a big mistake.
0: Okay. So, yeah, I mean, you guys have made a strong case for Bitcoin, but I did want to ask you about Ethereum because, as you probably know, that does have more developer mindshare. And I wondered, you know, even though you can, I'm sure, see that, uh, I believe the last big report I saw on this um, showed that there are about four times the number of um, developers in Ethereum as in Bitcoin. Um, you know, I was curious to know, why does that not translate into investor conviction on your part? And one other thing I wanted to throw in there was because I saw Yasin um, co-wrote a Medium piece where um, I'm just blanking on what the the matrix was, but it was something like unconstrained and constrained. And um, I also heard Kathy give a talk where she talked about the East coast way of looking at the world and the West coast way. And I just sort of wondered um, if that had anything to do with, you know, your views on Ethereum or or really any smart contract, any cryptocurrency affiliated with a smart contract.
3: Okay. I'll start. And I I know uh, Yassine has a lot more to say about it. Uh, uh but as an investor i have to and because i'm not solely in the crypto space I have to pick my spots and, and, and we run concentrated portfolios. Uh, so I typically go with uh, the highest conviction names in any space, in any innovation space. And and Bitcoin bar none is that uh, for me. Ethereum, yes, we get back into that West Coast. Is this technology, is this software technology uh, or is this money? And I think that, that the... The the value in these ecosystems is going to be dominated by the currencies, uh, and Bitcoin being the reserve currency would be where I'd allocate uh, most of our assets in this space, although I could see over time if there are other currencies that evolve uh, and some people think ether could could uh, evolve into the kind of currency we 're thinking about you know the equivalent of the euro the yen or or the yuan uh the pound uh what have you uh, we, we're i 'm as uh, again having to pick my spots i 'm going to focus in the cryptocurrency space where I think most of the value will accrue uh uh anyway and uh i'll leave the technology side to uh to to others but uh yasin
2: sure so i, I would say just to, uh, to add on to that i think what we've seen really the most salient distinction between crypto investment philosophies and it touches on this idea uh of like constrained versus unconstrained visions of crypto networks is you know looking at looking at these, at these networks as kind of a software first uh, in which I kind of coined them as innovation maximalists, uh, or kind of money first, in which kind of you 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 can coin them as monetary maximalists. Uh, in which case, if you look at it from a software-first mindset, um, kind of the killer app is definitely not money, and the killer app is definitely not Bitcoin. In fact, you know, the idea that y- you have some sort of, that, that this whole space has nothing more to offer than this slow and volatile form of sound money uh, to a software-first mindset seems seems quite anticlimactic. And so when you look at it from that mindset uh, the and from an investor-focused mindset, uh, you, you start to see that, yes, there are certainly limitations with Bitcoin. Uh, the investor focus should rather be on kind of creating these expressive, upgradable base layer protocols with these large feature sets. Uh, and that the network infrastructure priority should be around scalability and no, not having this very slow... Uh, yet reliable mechanism to transfer very, very small uh, pieces of data. Um, when you look at it from kind of a money first mindset, then then you you start and kind of end with Bitcoin, uh, in which case kind of the investor focus is really around kind of that ins- assurance theory of money and 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 looking at this really from a monetary view. Um, I would say that from an investor standpoint, there is this kind of discrepancy that people are, are kind of failing to realize with, uh, between kind of value capture and value creation. Um, and that's where I would say uh, our views on Ethereum uh, are, are uh, differ in terms of where value is going to end up accruing long term. Um, so the best, the best analogy that I can actually give for this, and I actually Placeholder was the first to bring this up, was actually in the context not of Bitcoin versus Ethereum, but actually of Ethereum versus Ethereum killers. Uh, And so if you kind of look at this as, okay, coming into this year, you had kind of a number of Ethereum killers that that kind of plan to launch their mainnets. And and so and, and we've seen kind of the the algorithms and the hash graphs of the world. Who have been able to sell this dream of of look our 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 technology is a lot superior? Uh, well, that hasn't really been reflective in where value has accrued. Uh, obviously, in bull markets, you tend to see that these are kind of levered beta plays, and so you would expect. Uh, the, the, than to trade up. So at a time when Ethereum was trading at like $130 billion of market cap, you had you know EOS and, and Cardano that, that weren't even launched but had kind of tradable uh, tokens that were trading at 10 to $20 billion of market cap. Um, it, now, in bear markets, uh, the, the disposition is a lot different, uh, especially, I, I would say, if the fundamentals are questionable. And so I think that very similar to how Bitcoiners view Ethereum's odds of kind of usurping it by using, let's say, the developer activity as a metric, etherians view Ethereum killer's odds as usurping it as in very, very similar ways. And that is, it's really hard to justify valuations based on kind of superior technology and feature, feature sets alone. Um, and, and so you first have to understand kind of what is supported, I would say, by Ethereum and Bitcoin's market cap before uh, you, can, you can justify why these Ethereum killers merit higher valuations. Um, and there are things that, that, that are simply uh, something like developer activity or feature sets can't, uh, can't really replace as a value proposition. Uh, and so I would say to Ethereum's credit, it, it has built out a, 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 an extremely robust set of stakeholders. Uh, and I, and I do, and I, and I am bullish on the idea of experimentation on Ethereum. I think that there's very, very interesting experimentation. Uh, but, but I remain hesitant, uh, to think that most value is going to accrue in the long run to, uh, things, uh, that kind of aren't proven forms of money.
0: All right. So we're going to do, we're a little bit over time, but do you guys have a few minutes to, to just do a lightning round of three last questions? Sure. Okay. Um, So one thing that I was curious about was I saw that you guys are also bearish on cryptocurrencies with privacy features like Zcash, but at least um, for the you know, privacy cryptocurrency crew, they would say, Oh, um, the investment case for these is that financial institutions want to, you know, use these crypto assets, but they don't want all their transactions to be public, they want to have privacy features built in. So I was wondering, like, do you disagree with that? Like, do you think that that isn't going to be something that, you know, enterprise or institutions will have demand for?
3: Yeah, I'll start, uh, and then and sure. then. Uh, so, Yasin, just because I know where this came from, uh, sure, I, I I gave a presentation in in Boston where I where I said the fully dark uh, uh, coins uh, I, I would be concerned about mostly mostly because I think the government uh, from a privacy point of view, and especially you know everything that's going on in the rest of the world right now, I think this is even more of a risk. They are they are going to want some transparency for themselves. Now I know, uh, that certain of the coins are, you know, they will allow that, you know, it's the users who are, uh, enable, uh, you know, the, the transparency. Yeah. The transparency. Yeah. So I'm not saying point blank, 100% uh, across the board that, that I, I wasn't really trying to, to say, and I do think that they will, you know, iterate to a, a point where you know th- there there has to be uh, some oversight. I believe um, you know to prevent uh, nefarious actors, which you know really everyone involved should should want. Uh, but uh, Yassine, you you I'm sure have more.
2: sure I'll take it from from the lens of uh, yeah I'll take it from from the lens of more like privacy as as a technology. Um, I, I would say that r- really the, the the stance on being more skeptical about privacy coins is really like if you consider privacy co- privacy to be like an, an implementation of a technology, I think that like in the open in the open source world, I, I think that it, it's nowhere near as defensible as what we would traditionally see. Uh, and so the the big caveat to that is if larger assets, let's say like a Bitcoin or an Ethereum, end up assuming the same privacy features as as these privacy focused coins then i think over the long term uh, there is less of a value proposition for these privacy coins but there is a big question on let's say should we implement confidential transactions on bitcoin's base layer and that may come at the cost of auditing monetary supply uh, and so we see kind of the limitations with zcash in its ability to audit monetary supply but at the same time, having confidential transactions at the base layer. So there are these questions, and I think that ultimately we we haven't reached this, uh, an equilibrium. Uh, uh, and, and then from I would say from an investment standpoint, there is an argument to be made where if privacy coins or if a coin has the only the only feature of a pri- uh, of, of a coin is privacy, then they could actually end up just being glorified mixers. In which, you know, you, you, you want to mix your coins, you go into a privacy coin, and then you, you come back out and you've effectively cleaned your coins, in which case, you know, the, there's high velocity in the privacy coin. And so from a value accrual standpoint, it would seem kind of less interesting uh, it, it, as opposed to pure store of values.
0: And one other thing I wanted to ask about, of course, is a big event coming up on the horizon, which is the Bitcoin halving. And obviously, it's coming at a really um, kind of crazy time in the history of the world. Um, And, you know, not only the crypto markets. So what is your outlook on what will happen at that time?
3: Yeah, we we, uh, have had a few brainstorms about this. uh, And I would say about five months ago, coming into this year, uh, there were, there was a lot of talk about the having and, uh, I began to feel like as we, I think we hit 14,000, I began to feel, okay, they're pricing this in, uh, uh, because it is a positive. First of all, it'll be, a it will be another proof, uh, proof point that we're heading for 21 million, you know, a, so- a successful, uh, software update and, um. And I think uh, you know, if you're diminishing the suppi- supply relative to demand, I think that's, that's a positive force. I'm glad that the discounting of it has been shaken out, because if we were still at 14000 or, or what have you, I'd say, I don't know how much is priced in. But given what just happened, I don't think much is priced in.
2: Yasin? Sure. So I, I think this is a really interesting topic. Honestly, I, I don't have a straight answer. I think that two camps have definitely formed. There's one camp that believes that the happening is priced in, uh, and, and, and like using citing the efficient market hypothesis, and then the other camp believes it's it's not. Uh, what I can say, or what I do believe, is that we def I think we're going to likely see kind of minor led selling pressure, uh, and, and in, in in which case, unless like the price of Bitcoin doubles. Uh, you, you'll start to definitely see uh, like pre- uh, miner-led selling pressures in that uh, there will be kind of these miners that are will be below their break-even cost, uh, and so I, I will expe- I do expect kind of a, a drop in in the network's hash rate. Uh, and as, but assuming that price that demand for the uh, Bitcoin remains the same, uh, having kind of a, a a having in its in, in this selling pressure. Uh, could lead to increases in price. Uh, I think that the Bitcoin Cash having is going to be it sets interesting precedent for uh, what to expect for Bitcoin. We definitely saw kind of a lot of miner led selling pressure for Bitcoin Cash, uh, uh, particularly from their kind of just shutting off miners. Uh, but but again, uh, you know this is the third having that that the that the market will witness. Uh, it's experienced only two havings in its history. Obviously, those two havings have tended to be kind of catalysts for bull runs. Uh, But uh, I, beyond that, I'm I'm not sure what's going to happen. Well, I'm very curious.
0: Yeah, yeah, me too, especially with everything going on. All right. So last topic, I just wanted to make sure to touch on before we said goodbye, is to talk about Libra and central bank digital currencies, which, you know, that was such a huge topic last year. And then you know, it sort of looks like the future was a little bit cloudy, at least for those. But then with all the coronavirus stuff now, at least central bank digital currencies are getting a little bit more life in them. And I wondered not only what your outlook was on those, but also just how that would interact with what's going on in the economy, because for instance, I did see that the Financial Stability Board has been warning regulators about disruption that could happen from them. So I kind of wondered how you thought the coronavirus crisis or or the impact of it would interplay with this push toward central bank digital currencies.
3: Yeah, Yasin, you want to start on that one?
2: Uh, Sure. I I would say uh, largely what's been very interesting, the Libra in general, I think, has been a very interesting catalyst putting kind of the term or the label crypto or crypto asset or cryptocurrency on the map. Uh, It's been very interesting to see kind of the evolution of the narratives and how seriously regulators were taking it post Libra announcement. I I think we've definitely seen uh, a, a lot of slowdown in the momentum on creating kind of this uh, Reserve backed uh, asset of which the basket is up to Facebook to to decide. Uh, we've seen kind of uh, we've seen a, a lot of pushback from kind of the EU. We've seen pushback from the United States. Uh, there are some that speculate that kind of Libra is never going to launch. I expect it to launch, but I, I expect it to likely look a lot different than than what what it was initially presented as. Uh, I've heard kind of through the grapevine that, you know, the the best solution is to actually just have a fully USD-backed Libra, in which case, you know, you appease regulators in in, in the United States. Uh, But that, that, that I I would say, sheds light on, I would say, one of the most interesting use cases in crypto, uh, especially amidst this recent uncertainty, and that's around stablecoins more broadly. Uh, it's been really interesting to see how, how the supply of all stable coins has, has grown to all-time highs around uh, coronavirus. And this is during kind of Bitcoin's massive drop. Uh, the, I think that the, the most recent statistic was uh, the stablecoin market cap is around 7 to 8% of uh, uh, the total uh, of Bitcoin's market cap. And so we're starting to see this, this trend pick up. Uh, and, you know, Kathy referenced emerging markets like the Venezuelas, the Argentinas of the world. Um, they would much prefer uh, holding the US dollar than they would prefer holding Bitcoin. Um, and per having some sort of coin, uh, dependent on whether or not you could export your private keys, I'm not sure if Libra is going to enable that. But if it does, this could serve as a very, very interesting use case for emerging markets. Uh, And we're starting to kind of see how the stablecoin growth is really a signal that investors are piling into these kind of crypto cash equivalents in times of uncertainty. The,
3: The irony is U.S. dollar based. We've just had this conversation about inflation. This would be another indication to me that um that uh, people do not believe that uh that what the Fed has just done and other monetary authorities uh will w- that the belief is there that it will never turn into inflation another another indication of sort of the uh complacency out there I find it very interesting,
0: yeah, and one other thing I was going to add is that the r- most recent episode of Unchained is an essay by Mariano Conti of the MakerDAO Foundation, who is Argentinian, and he talked about his, you know, road through cryptocurrency, basically, but um, kind of earlier on, he discovered it because, you know, in Argentina, the value of the US dollar you get through the banking system is different from what you get on what we would call the black market, but apparently in Argentina it's called the blue market. Um, <laughs> but mm-hmm. anyway, and so through that, he, you know, got into, I think it was Bitcoin at first. And then um, later when stable coins came about, he, you know, for his freelance work, started getting paid in DAI and now he's that's just for him the the way to go and so you know that's literally just i mean of course it's just one person but still like you know through that story you can see like oh okay this is you know where this is being useful this is somebody who says like this is superior to what's available to me so um anyway okay well it's been so great having you both on the show thank you so much for coming on unchained thank you very much laura
2: thank you laura
0: Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about Kathy and Yassine and ARK Investment, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. Some of you have heard the weekly crypto news recaps I read on Unconfirmed and have asked me for the links to the stories I mentioned there. You can also get them delivered right to your inbox with my weekly newsletter, which comes out Fridays. Go to unchainedpodcast.com right now to sign up. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Fractal Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Josh Durham, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.